I wanted to wish everybody a good evening. You all spend a good time with your families over the holidays. Um, tonight's class is uh, an attempt to have a clarification of what's going on in the Mideast. That's all it is. It's an attempt. It's a, a hot to topic. We're here to basically to try to get some things clarified. Okay? The position of the uh, initiator of the school, the PCUSA, is to uh, support the original position of the Soviet Union and the socialist countries in 1948, which is a two-state solution. That is, Israel existing side-by-side, side, a free Palestinian state, and they will be trading with each other. This was all decided many, many years ago, and the extremes on both sides destroyed that. So now we are where we are, and um, we're going to have this class tonight. I hope we get some clarification. Thank you. All right. It took us about four times as long to come up with this very complicated situation. Um, what I'll be presenting first is um, October 7th until uh, today. Uh, we, we wanted to go through exactly what's going on between the 7th and now. And then part two is going to give us some more historical background. All right, so we're going to start out right with October 7th. And this is slide one. So Hamas launched its historic Al-Aqsa flood invasion of occupied Palestine. Hamas fighters breached the wall separating Gaza and occupied Palestine and launched a full-scale military operation. Hamas fired missiles and overran the Israeli occupation forces, the garrison outposts, and other areas. I think there's a couple of kibbutzes, too. Slide two. Hamas captured approximately 250 prisoners, including Israeli-occupied forces, which is the IOF soldiers, of the 250 mostly were Israeli civilians. And this is for Hamas's um, usual practice of kidnapping and trading them for the release of Palestinian prisoners held in the Israeli prisons. Keep in mind, before the invasion, the coalition of Hamas fires, and they actually, when they practiced their drills, they also practiced the kidnapping of uh, hostages. The Netanyahu government claimed they were surprised by the Hamas action. However, their immediate counteroffensive response, bombing, began on October 7th, later in the day. Okay, slide three. The Israeli Health Department reported that 900 of its citizens died on October 7th. Half of those were soldiers and police, but many Israeli civilians were also killed by IOF fire because they launched 28 Apache helicopters with Hellfire missiles. Our source is the Israeli police uh, via a newspaper. It was a, uh, an interview, and we have the video so that you can see it uh, on the next page. Israeli government spokesperson Mark Regev admitted in an MSNBC interview that on 7 October, Israeli forces burned to death hundreds of people in indiscriminate fire that did not distinguish Palestinian fighters from Israeli civilians. And the, um, the video is a little 
confusing. What basically was, they said there were 1,400, I think, burned alive, but it, it turned out that only 1,200 were Hamas fighters, okay? So there was 200 unaccounted for. <clears throat> All right, so then we go to three. And this is number four. Okay, in October 7th, helicopters, the 28 Apache helicopters, were able to fly back and forth to reload their Hellfire missiles. Okay, so I'm going to first show you this one, Israeli helicopters shoot civilians, and this just goes to a source. And this is where Israel admitted that not all of the people in the, uh, the burned carcasses, excuse me, the burned bodies, were Hamas fighters. All right. We had the number at 1,400 casualties, and now we've revised that down to 1,200 because we understood that we had overestimated, we, we made a mistake. There were actually bodies that were so badly burnt, we thought they were ours. In the end, apparently, they were uh, Hamas terrorists. What we're, what we're uh, when with we respect, make a mistake, we admit it. Short Sorry about that. It looks like they're having problems too. All right. So we're going to go back here and then recall about um, how the hostages were treated. This one is a survivor of one of the kibbutz. I'm going to actually uh, drown out the sound and I will just read the subtitles because you may not see them at the bottom. There were 10 terrorists banging on the room. We heard a lot of yelling in Arabic and it was a very, very tense hour. We felt indescribable fear. After an hour, they managed to break into the safe room and they took the four of us out of there to a nearby house where there were already eight hostages. We joined those eight hostages, so we were about 12 hostages and 40 terrorists that were guarding us. I'm keeping this story short. Did they harm you? They didn't harm us. They treated us very humanely. Humanely? Yes. What does that mean, humanely? They guarded us. They gave us something to drink now and then when they saw we were anxious. They calmed us down. It was very frightening, but no one behaved toward us violently. Luckily for me, nothing happened to me, like what I've been hearing about in the media. Horrible, terrible things happened. Right. But after two and a half hours in short, at the beginning, there was nobody with us from the security services. We were the ones who called the police together with kidnappers. The goal of the kidnappers was to abduct us to Gaza. One of the terrorists wanted to surrender to the police, but this terrorist was the one I conversed with during these two hours. I also spoke with some of the other kidnappers who had kept us hostages. He then decided to use me as a human shield. I found this out afterwards. He called to me and we started leaving the house under fire. We shouted at that point to the special forces who had gotten there to stop shooting. And they heard me and they stopped. And I saw on the grass of the kibbutz there, five or six hostages lying on the ground outside from the massacre. 
in the line of fire between our forces and the terrorists. The terrorists shot at them? No. They were wounded in the exchange of fire. There was heavy firing going on. So could they have been shot by our own forces while they're trying to eliminate the kidnappers? Absolutely. It's painful to me. They fired on anyone. The exchange of fire was very intense. I was freed around 5.30. At 8.30, the fighting ended. After some wild exchanges of fire, even some tank shells were fired at this tiny kibbutz house. It wasn't, you could see this was, uh, yeah, it wasn't a big place. At that point, everyone had been killed and it was quiet except for something and that was it. Okay, so how did everyone else die? In the firing back and forth. So have they been shot dead by our forces? Absolutely, really. Yes, that's what I think. It sounds so sad. All right. Now, um, we have a question on this one. And uh, let's see, this is slide what, four. Okay, we have one more slide to go. This is a bombing video. And I think I'll wait until I hear from what other people feel. It's an infrared camera on an Israeli helicopter showing um, uh, their firing on moving targets. And on one sense, okay, this is gory and horrible, but on the other sense, uh, we as Americans have no clue what happens in the rest of the world as far as this goes. So I think it's something we should show. I'll wait until I, I hear a little response when we um, break in one more slide. Okay. And because we can always go back to that and do it. All right. So Hamas, despite being greatly under-equipped for fighting compared to the Israeli establishment, inflicted massive damage to the uh, IOF forces, and that's the Israeli um, occupational forces, it's really not an army, okay? So that's why we have IOF. And gained significant territory momentarily in their opening uh, battle. And let me just see if the next one is, there we go. All right, I'll make this the last one. So you see the pink is um, Gaza. So on October 7th, what you see in the blue is what, um, Hamas was able to infiltrate into their surrounding area. Of course, keep in mind within a few days they were pushed back, but that's how far they advanced, which is basically the same size as, as the whole Gaza Strip. Alrighty, so I'm going to stop here. I'll go ahead and go with the first hands raised. Really quick, I have a question, but I wanted to mention that I think the uh, their practice where they will fire on people who they might even know are their own civilians so that they aren't captured as hostages. I've been watching a lot of news lately, of course, and I learned that that's called the Hannibal Doctrine because Hannibal would drink poison rather than be captured. Um, mm -hmm. And apparently this doctrine went away 
because it was controversial, but apparently it's back. So if anybody's more interested in it, that's what it's called. Thank but you. yeah, my question though is, is, um, is there a difference between what we're calling uh, Israeli occupational forces and the Israeli defense forces or IDF? Or no. are they the same thing? Same thing. Basically, they're defense forces, occupational forces. They are not an army. That's how they they're called, they call themselves the IDF. Yeah, I was going to say that it's important to understand that on October 7th, the forces that were mobilized to, uh, uh, went on the offensive and the breakout from the Gaza camp were not just Hamas. Hamas was the majority, but there were, it was a coalition of actual forces, including just regular everyday Palestinians who had never been outside of Gaza, who were just curious about what it was like. And so there was the Islamic Jihad, there was the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who is a Marxist group. And uh, in fact, they were instrumental in taking out the Israeli watchtowers yeah. uh, that were there. And you are so, correct, right. There was um, a coalition uh, directed by Hamas, basically, but yes, yeah. And the training they did, it was with the coalition. All the groups trained together. It was, a, it was coordinated, definitely. Howdy, comrades. Just wanted to say in regards to the video that you were talking about, if we want to see that or not, I think it's definitely important that we do play it. Um, I think throughout the history of journalism, seeing footage from war zones has been a massive part of changing folks' minds. Um, and, you know, if you can't watch, don't watch. But, you know, the Palestinians who are in the West Bank and in Gaza can't look away, you know, unlike we can. Yeah, they tried to run away. Okay, thanks. You know, this genocide is all bloody. It's all gory. And we're going to see a lot of footage that we're not comfortable with. But I think as Americans, that's necessary of us. Uh, it was the same thing during the war in Afghanistan and Iraq when the WikiLeaks videos came out. Um, we need to see the brutality of this Zionist regime. So, yes, we need to show it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask was... Do you have a source for the claim that Hamas practices kidnappings in their drills? I'm just wondering. I'm not discounting that you have a source. I'm just wondering what that source is. Uh, yeah, and I can probably get it to you. Trust me, guys. Uh, feel free to say, no, this is not true. That isn't, or you forgot about this, that, and the other thing. I am telling you, this has been brutal, putting this together. Uh, I myself had read uh, in one of the articles, and I would have to get that for you. We tried very hard to put as many sources in. But we have both um, the opinionated Western press media and the opinionated all other media. So it was very difficult to get something that wasn't nuanced one way or another. Okay, so we, we try to meet a happy medium as much as we can. Okay. However, in my deep dive, I said, what are the historical Hamas attacks? Uh, and it went through a couple of decades. And in there, it talked about capturing an Israeli one and then using them to get some of their prisoners back. So maybe not at the 250 level, 
but in past de decades, this was one of their modus operandi. That I can tell you, and that is easy to find out. What's, what's good, comrades? Uh, so this is, I, I didn't know about this, that IOF is not considered a conventional military. I, I assumed because they had multi-million uh, dollar, uh, you know, <laughs> planes and, and Navy, naval forces, like, why is that that formation considered non-conventional? It's the way they present themselves that, you know, it's a good question. Why not have an Army, Navy, whatever? First, I want to confirm what I said about the strategy about prisoners or hostages, if you want to call them that way, by Hamas is always to exchange the thousands of political prisoners in Israeli jails, including children. Okay. Second, IDF versus IOF. Okay, so Israel called its military IDF, like defense, you know, Ministry of Defense, stuff like that. Every single Palestinians, all of them, all the Arab nations, millions of Muslims in the world, hundreds of millions, maybe billions, call it IOF. Israeli occupation force. That's all. Thank you. Yeah, and I just wanted to add, too, that it's not unprecedented for a country, especially a Western-backed country, to have a military and act like it's not an official military. Japan, yeah. for instance, has always had the, I think, Japanese Special Defense Forces or something like that, or strategic. It's, it's some sort of uh, watered-down name for what is a, an armed military, uh, but they can get away with it because the West is never going to hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And I want to say also that IOF sometimes also stands for the Israeli Offensive Forces because you can't say that you're on the defense if you've been occupying for so long. Very interesting, yeah. No, and you're right about Japan. I had, I had forgotten about that. They do the same thing. Yeah, the IDF, it is recognized as the National Military of Israel. It has an army, the ground forces, it has an air force and a navy. Um, the naming is, is just a name, but it is, you know, it's acknowledged as the national military of Israel. Okay, very good. All right, so we showed this. So this is all October continuation. Now we take a little pause here. Angelo noted that in the first um, slides that we really didn't make the comment about who or what is Hamas. And I know so many of us have found out in the last month more than we probably ever wanted to know, but we thought it important just to put some background from, and I, again, various sources, because it has been very difficult for us to feel comfortable about wherever we got our so sources. We did the best we could. All right. And anything that, of course, was more neutral or less nuanced. All right. So the history of Hamas is an account of the Palestinian Islamist fundamentalist social political organization. And you might even say organizations, but you know, again, that's up for grabs depending on your interpretation. Uh, that is associated with a paramilitary force. A spinoff of the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in the late 1980s, uh, the Islamist military group Hamas took over the Gaza Strip 
after defeating its revival political party, Fatah, in elections in 2006. And again, uh, you have to remember that um, I think Gaza Star was created, or I should say formulated, because there was a lot to it in 1987, but uh, I think that's in another slide. So this is slide seven, if you want to discuss it. Oops, I forgot to fix this. All right. Uh, this is slide eight. <clears throat> For years, the various governments led by Benjamin Netanyahu took an approach that divided power between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, bringing Palestinian Authority President Mohammed Abbas to his knees while making moves that propped up the Hamas terror group. Now, this is from uh, Time on Israel or Time of Israel, and it, it's an op-ed uh, written by one of their um, reporters. So again, this is an op-ed, so it's an opinion. The idea was to prevent Abbas or anyone else in the Palestinian Authority's West Bank government from advancing toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now, this is where it's interesting. Thus, amid this bid to impair Abbas, Hamas was upgraded from a mere terror group to an organization with which Israel held indirect negotiations via Egypt, this is present day, and one that was allowed to receive infusions of cash from abroad. Now, of course, what they're talking about is all of the aid that's coming in. So uh, this person is obviously very upset with uh, Netanyahu. The important thing here is that it appears the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are two entities that, um, shall we say, anti-Palestinian uh, governments want to divide the Palestinians, one being the West Bank with Abbas, and one being Gaza Strip with Hamas. They have two different governments. And there's more on this later. That's, that's slide eight. Okay, religious movements in Palestine sought to develop the Islamic Brotherhood as a counterweight to the secularism of the PLO. Now the PLO is the liberation organization, that's Arafat. The objective result divided the Palestinian movement. Encouraged again by the monarchy in Jordan, outside forces, the Islamic Brotherhood was united in both Gaza and the West Bank. And this obviously was a counterweight to the PLO's secularism and anti-monarchism. So you got the PLO, the Palestine Authority and Hamas. And um, as long as they're divisive, no wonder they can't get anywhere but it was promoted by outsiders. So that's slide nine. In 1987, most Palestinians supported a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is slide 10. The post-election polls from 1987 indicated that Hamas's victory was due largely to Palestinians' desire to curb corruption rather than a desire to support Hamas's political platform. And then again, that's the source that we got this from. And um, 
a boss is a problem that's in the West Bank. That person has been a problem for many, many, many years. And uh, basically, uh, Abbas has really prevented elections. Everybody says Israel has prevented elections in the West Bank. Well, Abbas, if they have an election, Abbas is probably out. So I'm sure that Abbas is involved in that too. So that is slide 10. Okay, now we're back to October. That was just a diversion. It's a little bit of homage. We'll have more about that later. On October 8th, Netanyahu government begins a bombing campaign, which continued until November 24th. That was the ceasefire. So they can't, they bombed every day from the 8th on. This has killed, at our last reporting, over 15,000 Palestinians, including over 5,000 children, Palestinian children. Casualties of the bombing also included approximately 50 of the prisoners held in Gaza. Last I knew, I think it was 50. I don't, you know, that could be updated. Uh, the IOF disproportionately killed more civilians than Hamas fighters, including their own civilians, while Hamas killed more IOF soldiers than civilians, which I think is extremely interesting. Could be many reasons why, but uh, that's what the stats are so far. Okay, October. We've got the U.S. sending two aircraft carrier task force to patrol the coast of occupied Palestine to intimidate allies of Hamas. Uh, later, the U.S. sent a nuclear submarine armed with 120 Tomahawk missiles and a Boeing surveillance aircraft to hover over the area. Okay. And about 200,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced southwards. We know all this since November 5th. And this is from the United Nations Humanitarian Affairs Office. Rabbis and U.S. Congress members demanded a ceasefire as early as November 13th. And this up-to-date statistic, the massacre of journalists, most of them resident in Gaza at the time of their death, about 57 last I knew. The reporters themselves feel that they have been deliberately targeted and now remove all signage showing that they're the press. So if they think they're being targeted and are removing identification, I'd suspect that it's a, it's a strong possibility they are being targeted. So let's see, and that's uh, slide 13. Okay, uh, other facts that you can find elsewhere. Um, and uh, let's see, we showed where some of their one, the first one, U.S. generals are present in the IOF war room by this point, and that's Associated Press as of October 25th. On October 27th, the IOF begins ground invasion, claiming to rescue civilian and military hostages. They did not go for the full-scale invasion because you are, the U.S. had advised against it. And that's from RT, Russia Today, November 25th. Since the start of the ground invasion, 355 IOF tanks and armored vehicles have been destroyed by Hamas forces. Again, Russia today, November 25th. And that's slide 14. And of course, this whole thing about the hospital, we thought this was worth mentioning. The IOF attacks on the civilian infrastructure during ground op, or during the ground operation. I have an asterisk here. The attack on the Al Shifa Hospital, there's an asterisk on the bottom. 
Under international law, an army cannot, under any circumstances, attack a hospital. Article 18 of the Geneva Convention. So what did they end up doing? IOF charged Hamas was having bunkers under the hospital and using El Shifa as a base. In fact, the bunkers built by IOF in 1983 are the ones that are there. We'll see a, a map of that. Uh, while they were um, in what they call overrunning Gaza, they occupied the Palestine par Parliament building in Gaza. So this would be the Hamas Parliament building. And the and the uh, they actually the other hospital they bombed was a Christian hospital, a Baptist hospital again in Gaza. All right, and that is slide fifteen. So I tried to make this as big as I could. Uh, these are the the this white drawing is uh, is not a wall. All right, it's just the complex, the Al Shifa Hospital complex, and it. And in red are the bunkers that um, Israel built in when they built it, and I forgot when it was. But it was some. It was in the eighties, I think. But then when they left northern Gaza, of course, the building stood there. So, as you all know, they still haven't come up with any conclusive evidence that the Western world is interested in that they actually found something under there, but that was their pretext for going into Northern Gaza. Okay, so there was speculation on the purposes of the ground invasion, and I thought this map was very important. According to Colonel Wilkerson, who is retired United States um, uh, Army Colonel, and now is, is asked to give his opinion on everything. You know, he was in our State Department uh, under Colonel uh, Colin Powell at one time. So according to him, the purpose of the ground operation is, one, to clear the northern half of Gaza for settlements. Two, to clear a way for the Ben-Gurion Canal. This has been in the works for a long time, I think at least one or two decades. And uh, this, and I, I want to show you, you see where the Suez Canal is? And this has been a dream for some time to go into the Ben-Gurion, uh, what do you call it, Gulf of Aqaba. Here's the Gulf of Aqaba. You go up here. And at this point, this is the um, this is through Egyptian land here and here and here. But then the rest of the strip goes right into Gaza. There's Jerusalem, you know, which is uh, right close to Gaza. And here's the West Bank. I don't know if you can see it under the plane. So this is the other reason why they really would love to get rid of Gaza so they could have another canal open to the Mediterranean. And that is 17. Okay. And then 18. This is just stats as of the 24th and 25th, which is the ceasefire. And that's, of course, all we can go by. You know, whatever happens now will be for another class or something. So it's showing... The 24 prisoners released by Hamas, 39 Palestinians released, 17 prisoners released by Hamas, and 39 Palestinian prisoners released. So and it, oh, supposedly after the ceasefire, which was, I think, November 25th, I don't think it was before, 
the IOF withdrew their tanks from Gaza. All right, so we have a discussion now on these, and then we're going to have a video. All righty, we have some hands. Okay. I'm curious about the source on the American and or Israeli funding of Hamas. You remember when they started funding, if it mentioned it? Yeah, mostly after 1987. Okay. At this time, and again, there's there's a few sources that will talk about this. The whole thing was that you have Gaza and the West Bank under two different governments. All right. And um, Netanyahu also supported Hamas. Like I say, it was more than one source. Again, because they did not want, they wanted a division between the two. They'd rather have those two fighting. So there has been speculation. And I did read, uh, this is weird. This is, uh, what do you call it, CIA talk. All right. The CIA, when they were questioned as to whether they were supporting Hamas as well as other groups, what they said is we go by the Constitution and we do not uh, support um, any terrorist group. But then on the side, the CIA is, what do you call it, authorized to do their best to, uh, what do you call it, infiltrate all groups, all terrorist groups. It is in their interest to um, infiltrate. And from that perspective, they are always around the edges of all these terrorist groups, and you know how they operate with stings and so on and so forth. 90 seconds. So, okay, so you guys can take your take your um, own opinion on just how much involvement. And according to this other, sorry, this um, op-ed that uh, because Netanyahu allowed Hamas to get as big as it did, that it now is getting cash infusions from a lot of people. That's all I can tell you. But yes, there are sources and um, it's up to you to decide whether they're good or not. All right, anybody else? Uh, Comrade General Secretary, Angelo, you have the floor. Yeah, can you all hear me? Yes. All right, listen carefully. This is not new. This is an old tactic by the capitalist class. They funded bin Laden, who was a nobody, who was a fundamentalist, very the same as Hamas. No difference. Islamic fundamentalists. They funded him, the CIA and the American government. Why? To oppose the Soviet government in Afghanistan. This is a common fact that we all know. Later, bin Laden came and bit the hand that fed him. They always do this. The hand that fed him, they bite, and they went, and then him. he used all our missiles that we gave him, surface to action, missiles to take down Soviet helicopters. And he used that expertise to take down the World Trade Center. This is not new. This is old. 
in the 50s, there was, we every year we had a world festival of youth that the communist movement supported. There was a group in this country called the National Student Association, NSA, <laughs> which was considered liberal. Everybody said they were liberal. Well, it winds up, we found out years later. And Ramparts, if you ever heard of this magazine, Ramparts from the 60s did a whole expose on this. I had a subscription. All this can be found on, you guys now have the internet. All this can be found there. So the United States funded NSA to counteract the, the Young Communist League and the real communists that went to the World Youth Festivals. So they do this all the time. It's not new. Don't listen to anyone who tells you it's not true. It is a fact of life. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And just real quick, uh, just following up on the whole 9-11 thing, in a 2005 letter about the reasoning for 9-11, Osama bin Laden actually listed uh, U.S. support to Israel and their treatment of Palestinians as part of the reason why. So that there, this very subject had blowback on 9-11. Yeah, I just wanted to add on in the same vein um, that I've heard uh that Netanyahu has allowed the Qatari government to send funding to Hamas, um, essentially treating it as a controlled opposition. Um, I've also heard, I don't know how true this is, that the that uh, the Israeli government has allowed um, other terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and al-Nusra to uh, be sheltered in Israel. Um, and of course, as uh, Angelo said, uh, this is nothing new. The Muslim Brotherhood has always been used by the U.S. government and the Israeli government as a as a means to achieve their own ends. Thank you. Yeah, I just something else that I've been reading about uh, recently is the role that the natural gas deposits off the coast have uh, played into. Uh, the current conflict and I read that in August there was even a tentative agreement between the Palestinian Authority uh, Israel and the US um, over rights to exploit the natural gas deposits off the coast um, Hamas uh, was against it um, but Hamas I think was as as has been said was indirectly uh, involved because it would involve uh, Gaza. Um, and I think negotiations broke down. Um, and it, it, coupled with the canal, I think it paints a, a clearer picture behind the interests uh, involved in, in why uh, Israel, why the U.S. is pushing Israel to do what it's doing. Yeah, 60 seconds. All right. Thank you, Comrade Tim. I just have two things real quick, uh, just to go ahead and go back to the presentation. We don't have to pull it up. Uh, the first thing is I actually saw different statistics on the amount of displaced Gazans. Um, now, I don't know if the wording was specific to the Gazans uh, put south uh, and of the Gaza or into the Gaza Strip in the southern part. But I know that out of a 2.2 million population in Gaza, about 1.7 million have been displaced. 
That's about 83% of the population that's homeless. That's comparable to a city like Chicago or a state like uh, North Dakota or something like that. That is a huge amount of people that um, that is unprecedented. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add is uh, I'm I'm a little uncomfortable with some of the wording that we have around some of this stuff, like the ceasefire. Uh, is it really a ceasefire if it's just a pause in a larger genocide to get some prisoners? I mean, it's a small, small victory. But considering the fact that the Israeli military plans to continue uh, their genocide after this, uh, I don't know how much of a ceasefire it is. What we want is a permanent ceasefire. That's what people are calling for all, all across the country. Uh, but another thing that I find is a bit of a weird wording is just calling it a conflict, which, you know, it is a conflict. That is correct. Um, but what's happening now in, in Gaza is far disproportional to what happened in Israel to begin with. And I really need to use the term genocide more. It is a genocide. It meets the textbook definition of genocide. And we should treat it with that weight. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to weigh in because there's been some questions around sources. And I often find that the most informative method um, is to use the Israeli press itself because within Zionist imperialism, there's a lot of political uh, jockeying, a lot of sharp disagreement, and sometimes they make admissions, um, you know, in that setting that that they wouldn't make um, outside in the rest of the world. Um, so, in particular, there's been a lot of attacks by former Prime Minister Ehud Barak. You know, I, I don't pretend to be such a good analyst that I really know what his full agenda is. Um, but he's been making some strong accusations against Netanyahu. And in particular, it's resurfaced in recent days how at the 2019 party conference, Likud party conference, Netanyahu made some statements to the effect that anyone, this is a quote, anyone who wants to prevent a two-state solution, uh, where is it here? Whoever is against the Palestinian state should be for the practice of transferring Qatari money, um, cash, to Hamas in Gaza, uh, which the Israelis have been doing for many, many years. Um, and then, you know, I, I think some people have alluded to there's kind of a broader um, conflict between Qatar and the other um, Gulf monarchies. Uh, you know, in uh, materialist terms, like these are all very similar political entities. Um, but Qatar is a historical funder and friend of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, they kind of have more of a rapprochement attitude towards Iran. And there's also, and again, this is something as an outsider I don't understand, just an element of, uh, between rivalry between royal families. Um, but the, they're, yeah, so I thank you. Uh, yeah, we went down that rabbit hole and we had to exclude so much, including Hezbollah and what's happening up uh, in northern Gaza with Lebanon and all that. Uh, we need more research. We could have more classes on just that whole thing. So keep that in mind. Yeah. It, like I said, we had to be careful. It was very, it was very painful to eliminate a lot of what we had to. I just want to let you know. Yeah. So I guess I have two, two questions, if I could real fast. I'm curious about what our analysis is um, about like some of the relationships, like the normalizing accords between like Saudi Arabia and Israel and what effect that would have had on the ability for Palestinians 
to be able to even fight for a two-state solution? And did that figure into the uh, Hamas's decisions to launch this campaign? And then the other question that I would have about sort of some of our discussion around like Hamas and some of these other groups is um, would we would we want the thinking about having a united front and an anti-colonial struggle would mean supporting all groups that are trying to do that anti-colonial struggle. Am I wrong in that? Thank you. Okay, first of all, the second question is uh, not the scope, uh, but we do need, again, as I mentioned, we need a lot more information on that. Uh, what was your first one about Saudi Arabia? It only has been supposed. It makes sense that that was one of the key things that um, was important to the Hamas attack. However, we all know that Hamas had a long time planning it. So I, we, you know, on outsiders cannot say exactly what they are thinking. We are all presupposing. Okay, thanks. Um, I just wanted to uh, respond to comment. Um, uh, as of today, the American Peace Information Center is calling. You all, you all know what that is. APIC um, is calling for a no-fly zone over Gaza. Okay, it's calling for a no-fly zone. The idea of this is to remove the uh, apparent advantage that the uh, I can't I can't avoid this word that the Zionists have in the air because they have been bombing um, uh, Gaza, and of course Gaza doesn't have any anti-aircraft uh, guns. Um, it doesn't have any anti-aircraft missiles, um, and in fact, it hardly has anything. To attack the Israelis with, and so to a limit to have a no-fly zone, then then that makes it more of an even playing field. Um, on the ground, as you may have heard in the presentation, unless it was censored, the the fact is that um, the uh, the Hamas and its allies are not doing so bad. They've destroyed about 400 plus uh, Israeli tanks and armored personnel vehicles and things of that sort. Um, and the Israelis are scared shitless to fight. They are they're scared shitless. That's why they're attacking the hospitals. There's no Hamas soldiers in the hospitals. Uh, so they, you can attack the hospitals. The patients aren't going to fight you. They're sick, they're dying, and they're defenseless. And so uh, I think looking at why they're attacking El Shifa Hospital. 90 seconds. Thank you. Clue as to, as to what's going on on the ground. So uh, I just wanted to add that. Um, I know that different countries have different, uh, slightly different cultures and all that stuff, but forgive me, from like an Arab to an Arab, wh why won't other countries take other, the Palestinians as a refuge? Thank you. Um, I think that is subject for another, hang on to that question if we have time, but it's not within this realm. Uh, it's something I'm sure we're all wondering about. Yeah, I understand um, the position that, uh, you know, uh, revolutionaries abroad, including revolutionary states, anti-imperialist states, uh, have, you know, supported the um, ceasefire as well as the two-state solution. Um, but I also understand that it's noteworthy that the the uh, the secular revolutionary movements that are much smaller than Hamas, but it still exists, are fighting alongside Hamas to you know, repel 
the invasion from IOF. I just wanted to, you know, that is noteworthy. That is something it to is observe. Noteworthy. They came mm -hmm. together. It's noteworthy. Absolutely. All right, go ahead, Tim. Um, just briefly in response to the question about Egypt. Egypt um, has said that they don't want to take in uh, the Palestinians uh, because they've done it before. Um, and there are some living um, near the border with Palestine already. Um, something to do with uh, welfare costs um, and other costs associated with housing them in, um, as refugees. Um, the other uh, angle here is that Egypt is involved in the negotiations with the uh, natural gas deposits hmm. off the coast. Yeah. So there is there is some element there where Egypt would benefit. Yes. I was going to say, as far as Egypt is concerned, Egypt is run by a brutal dictator right now. And he does not want to allow the Palestinians in. And it's probably best that they not go into Egypt because they would be treated very badly if they were. Yeah. And the other thing is the fact that Egypt is a puppet state of America. Egypt and to a lesser extent, Saudi Arabia were both puppet states of America, as is Jordan. Mm -hmm. And there have been refugee camps in other countries like Jordan and Lebanon for Palestinians. But part of this is the fact that the Israeli government wants to push the Palestinians out. Yeah. They want to push them into Egypt and into other countries. They want to ethnically cleanse so that they can have total control over the land and the territories. Yeah, that's right. And so that's the big part of it. You're absolutely correct. And that we did see that in all of our searches. Again, the whole Saudi Arabia and Egypt thing, it could be a whole class by itself. So that's why we have to keep it, you know, as much as we can to what's happening currently in just Israel and um, Gaza. Yeah, so also about uh, Arab states taking Palestinians as refugees, I want to say this. In 1938, Ben-Gurion, he was the head of the Jewish agency in Palestine before World War II. And he declared that 2 million Palestinians should go to Egypt in the Sinai. One. Okay. Second, in 1941, the very first time the Zionist leaders met with a, a USSR official that was in London, Ivan Maisky, the ambassador of the USSR in the UK, and uh, Weizmann, who will later become the first president of Israel. Okay, So he met Maisky and he said, how about if one million Palestinians are transferred to Iraq? Okay, so that's not a new idea. It's an idea that uh, is uh, 80 years old, uh, more even. All right, thanks. And that's when, yeah, again, another whole subject. Okay, what you can see is what the uh, pilot saw. And um, as I see, you can see people running, and I, I don't see any guns. But there may be some, but I'm sure there are. But just the indiscriminate side of it, I think, is uh, poignant. 
There's more people walking. make of it as you will. I'm sure there are many fighters in there, but um, I thought uh, it's controversial enough for us to take a look at. Okay. And yeah, just to preface this, we had a lot to go through. Um, you know, here's some of the slides that we had, um, but we decided to start with the Oslo Accords. Um, and we'll go into more detail in other meetings uh, in other classes as well. So I'll start with this and I'll try to, okay. So uh, we start with the Oslo Accords of 1993, 1995, the Oslo Declaration of Principles, which established the general guidelines for the negotiations to come and laid the foundation for a Palestinian interim self-government. That is the Palestinian National Authority in the West Bank in Gaza for a transitional period of five years, which is known as the, um, it's like Oslo process, 1995 to 1999. And this agreement stipulated measures for the transfer of authority from the Israeli military government and its civil administration to the authorized Palestinians and laid the basis for permanent status talks based on the security resolutions 242 and 338. And what are those? Oh, and here's um, President or Prime Minister Rabin 
and Yasser Arafat, who was, yes, in charge of the PLO. Yes, yeah, so what were those resolutions? 242, which was in 1967, passed unanimously at the UN Security Council on November 22nd of 1967. That's five months after the Six-Day War. And that called for a withdrawal of Israel armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict and termination of all claims or states of belligerency and respect for and acknowledgement of the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence of every state in the area and their right to live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries free from threats or acts of force. And you can see a picture there. Um, it's of the pre-1967 borders, okay? In my opinion, it should be called the 1949 borders, but that's a whole other thing. In the context of the Six-Day War of 1967, it called for the removal of Israeli occupation from lands it usurped, such as the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the West Bank of the Jordan River from Jordan, from Syria, and the Gaza Strip, okay? So then we have 338, which was passed to call for a cessation of hostilities during the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Calls upon all parties to the present fighting to cease all firing and terminate all military activity immediately, no later than 12 hours after the moment of the adoption of this decision in the position they now occupy. Two, calls upon the parties concerned to start immediately after the ceasefire the implementation of Security Council Resolution 242, which is the one we just referred to, in all of its parts, decides that immediately and concurrently with the ceasefire, negotiations shall start between the parties concerned under appropriate auspices aimed at establishing a just and durable peace in the Middle East. So while these resolutions went through the UN, there were some difficulties actually getting them the procedures to process them. The Oslo Accords was an attempt but here's what happened. So the agreement brought Israel to its first official recognition of the Palestinian people and its national leadership under the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which is the PLO, and brought the spokesman for Palestinian national movement to its recognition of the existence of Israel. So finally, both sides had to recognize that they both exist. And the PL, under the leadership of Yasser Arafat, who was there on the left, also renounced all uses of terrorism and other acts of violence. And that was a letter to the Prime Minister of Israel, Rubin, um, and that was in, of September 9th, 1993. So he wrote that. The Accords mentioned a permanent settlement of unresolved issues within five years based on those two Security Council resolutions. But these issues never resolved. And why is that? Well, in November 1995, Rabin was assassinated by Yilga Amir, who's there in that unusual picture, an Israeli who opposed the Oslo Accords. Some of the Oslo Accords negotiations did take place, like the creation of the Palestinian Authority, also known as PA, that would act to implement the elections, which we mentioned of 2006. Don't know if we'll have enough time to go through those. However, successive Israeli governments, like Netanyahu's after Rabin, was assassinated, regarded the Accords as a way to maintain the occupation in large sections of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, with the Palestinian self-government filling the role 
of an auxiliary security agency protecting Israel in the settlements in the West Bank. So this is kind of where we see a bit of a downfall of the, I guess, of the PA or the PLO as well, which was associated with the PA. Netanyahu made no effort to conceal his deep antagonism to Oslo, denouncing as incompatible with Israel's right to security and with the historic right of the Jewish people to the whole land of Israel. There were um, records showing that after those Oslo Accords, in 1996, he basically called Rabin a Nazi for even negotiating with the PLO. So there's that. So what happened after the um, failure of the Oslo Accords? Well, the Oslo Accords and Camp David peace talks um, that were held in July 20, 2000 were quite frustrating and it created lots of tension where then-Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak failed to reach a peace agreement. So, September 28, 2000, the Israeli Defense Minister Ariel Sharon, accompanied by 1,000 armed troops, entered the Hiram al-Asharif, otherwise known as the Temple Mount, which is a holy site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And this ignited the second, or the Al-Aqsa Intifada. The first Intifada was in 1987, and that was at a time when there was a Soviet Union and it was it was supporting the PLO. The Oslo Accords were meant to be negotiated further, like it was mentioned. But after the beginning of the second Intifada, those negotiations were never done due to the increased violence on both sides. So the consequences of 2000, 2008 of the second Intifada or the Al-Aqsa Intifada the, was a huge death toll that reached almost 5,000, with over 50,000 injured on the Palestinian side. And the Israeli military operations turned the lives of the Palestinians, really, it was it was bad, cut towns and villages off from each other, destroyed their economy, and brought many to the verge of hunger. The extrajudicial execution of Palestinian militants, often killing civilian bystanders, became routine. And also, at this time, a lot of the research I found was the Jewish settlements were also expanding in the West Bank. All right, you want to break now? For uh, we have one hand yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Let's break no, for we questions. Can do that. Uh, what I wanted to say that I observed with this history is that you know there is seventy-five years of this. Um, it's coming up on eighty years. The eighties themselves, what we're talking about when it comes to the first Intifada, is almost forty years away. And there's about an equal amount of time between that and the creation of Israel. Um, and there was a lot of other historical context that was left out of this, I assume, for time, the Havara Agreement, the Nakba, different parts of history that we can't ignore, we can't hide from as communists, we have to face them head on. But what I want to say is that, um, and to answer one of the questions kind of earlier about uh, sort of the liberation of Palestine, national liberation movements we've always supported they've never been homogenous they've never been without their unsavory factors um even in vietnam which we all support the vietnam uh, liberation movement there were massacres there were forces that weren't too good but, but there was a point in time where even the khmer rouge uh, was a positive force and we learned that in that pol pot class um so i want to say that when it comes to the palestinian resistance we can't we we can't do a uh theoretical collective punishment of the Palestinian resistance just because of Hamas. And a lot of young is, or sorry, young Palestinian children grow up 
seeing all these bombings, all these occupations, all this violence that Israel keeps continuing. They keep messing up the peace. Uh, these kids grow up and they get into Hamas, and I don't think that they care, honestly, about the origins of Hamas. I don't think they care if Netanyahu gave money to Hamas. They just want the genocide to stop, and they want the occupation to end, and who the hell can blame them? Thank you. And uh, Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to remind people that I lived through all this, the Oslo Accords. I was active in the old party, and we took it very seriously. Our magazines, uh, Political Affairs, which was our theoretical magazine, and Jewish Affairs, which I was Jewish magazine, talked about um, the Oslo Accords. Um, we have a history that's different from radicals. I want to stress that over and over and over again. Many people that come to us think we're radicals, and we're not. We are not radicals. We have a famous picture of the walking the tightrope. You all know that picture, or you should know it. We don't want to fall on the right side of the tightrope because we'll fall to our death. We don't want to fall on the left side of the tightrope because we'll fall to our death. Our history is Lenin. Our history is left-wing communism, an infantile disorder. That's what Lenin wrote. That's what he warned against. I just want to warn people here. Do not get hypnotized and mesmerized of a romantic kind of situation. We are communists. Majority of us are communists. And we are not radicals. And there's a big difference. Thank 90 you. 90 seconds. Yeah. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, comrade. So earlier, one of our comrades here mentioned that... Uh, the operation on October 7th was a coalition, not just Hamas, but a coalition. And I want to mention the PFLP here, okay? 50 years ago, when I joined the Communist Party in France, our hero was Georges Abache, the founder of the PFLP in 1969, okay? He was supported by the USSR. They uh, gave him all the weapons and things like that, okay? And today, of course, sadly, the PFLP is much smaller than it was 50 years ago. And yet they do exist and they are uh, in a coalition with the Hamas and others in Gaza uh, for the resistance. So just so people know, okay, that's all. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh... Uh, that's something um, a comrade a few minutes ago uh, mentioned that um, uh, some of the states in the area were U.S. puppets. And uh, and I just wanted to, you know, you know, ditto that because all the states in the area are U.S. puppets, every single one, except for except for Lebanon, on the one hand. And then the other the other um, force that is not uh, run by the U.S. is Gaza. The Palestinian Authority on the West Bank is run by the U.S. They are puppets of the U.S. Um, and, the, and their people have rebelled against them. And as soon as October 7th, their people went out in the streets and in, even the police of the Palestinian Authority acted against the government of the Palestinian Authority. 
And so the only, the only, as it were, um, people's um, democracy in this situation is on the one hand, um, Gaza, and then on the other hand, there is South Lebanon, which is run by Hezbollah. Um, uh, my neighbors who live in my building, some of them are Hezbollah fighters, and they have gone down and fought at the border against the Israelis. So I just want to emphasize that angle that the uh, there is no zero anti-U.S. power except in Gaza and South Lebanon. OK, yeah. just to keep that in mind. Now, this situation is actually 90 seconds. Big, thank you. This situation is actually a big improvement from the 1980s when I first got involved in fighting those fascists in, in, uh, in Tel Aviv. The, um, in the 1980s, uh, uh, South Lebanon was being overrun by the uh, uh, Israeli offensive force, completely overrun and occupied. Uh, the Israelis occupied uh, southern Lebanon, south of Latani River, for like 20 years. It was outrageous. And I was completely outraged in 1982 when I heard that they had invaded. And I was at that time working with another another party. It is relevant. Okay. I just wanted to add about Prime Minister Rabin. Well, he was no saint. You know, he had a world uh, frame. He had a world ideology, really, that was Zionist. And he, it kind of co like conflicted with his peace agreements. And I would say maybe towards the end of his life, he kind of saw that. Um, but yeah, he was he wasn't perfect, obviously. And um, I think that's all I wanted to mention. Okay. So I'm trying not to ask a question that is worthy of an entire class because that's very easy to do. Um, but this question was sort of already answered by uh, Angela's last statement of the issue of trying to walk the tightrope and not be fall into uh, either side of radicalism. And my understanding, um, Maoist and Trotskyist groups generally support a one-state solution. And then the Marxist-Leninist line is to support the two-state solution. And so I understand this, but and I appreciate it. But without starting a whole a discussion worthy of a whole other class, can someone just explain the reason behind that in a, as succinctly as possible of like, so, okay, so then why exactly is the Marxist-Leninist line to support the two-state solution? Whatever you got, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Very yeah, much. I'd like to speak on that. Originally, we've always taken our lead from the Soviet Union. In fact, that was the big difference. I want you all to know the big difference in the communist movement is that we took our lead from, from the Soviet Union. The ultra left took their lead from who? From Maoist China or Trotsky. Remember, that was that's our history. That's where it starts. Uh, there was initially a call for a one-state solution. You all should know that. The United Nations first called for a one-state solution. It was impossible. The Soviet representative saw clearly that it was impossible. Both sides were stopping it. 
that's why we went to a two-state solution. Not because we originally wanted a two-state solution, but we had no choice. So that's why we went to that. And I just wanted to mention, every communist movement from the time before I joined the party till the time I was in the party till the time that they supported Perestroika and I had to, and they actually drummed us out of the party because uh, we were opposed to Perestroika. From that, we've always been for a, a, a two-state solution. We have never been, never, and this has to be underlined, we have never, never been for the destruction of the state of Israel. I want to make that very clear because there are forces, even within our party, who have a different view. But that is not our view. And it has nothing to do with me. This has to do with the world movement. I mean, movement. We are for a Israel that is anti, that does not live by Zionism and that lives with its neighbors. And that's what we're for. We're not for a destruction of one state and, and that kind of thing. The ultra left, they're big on that. You can hear them all the time. Thank you. All right. I hate to interrupt. First of all, we have a video. We could not uh, get it tonight. It's on Scott Ritter, who talks about just what Angelo was talking about. And it's very persuasive. If you want to see it, then definitely join us on Thursday. Um, it appears that it took him uh, many hours to get home because he just had to drive through a blizzard. So that way, that's why. But he is home safe now. All right. So I just wanted to mention those two things. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention uh, an interesting comment made by the Russian ambassador to the United Nations uh, shortly after the October 7th events when the when the Netanyahu government had begun its, its brutal, murderous, genocidal bombing campaign. Um, the Russian ambassador said that Israel does not have the right to defend itself. Now, I found that very shocking because that's the matron, uh, the, the mantra of, uh, of America, that Israel has the right to defend itself. So why is he saying this? He said that Israel doesn't have the right to defend itself because it is a colonial power in Palestine, that it invaded Palestine, its people invaded Palestine, and then drove out the inhabitants for the most part. They were driven into Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and uh, and and really has no right to defend itself because it's it's fighting against the people who live there, who lived there originally, the people in Gaza, the people in the West Bank, and it's like uh, the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the British did not have the right to defend themselves against the uh, American uh, uh, revolutionaries, American co colonists, because they were fighting against the colonial power. The Americans were. And so that's a very interesting thing. Now, another comment, I don't, know, I don't know if I have any more time, but another comment I wanted to insert is somebody else's comment again, Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter, you may have heard of him. He says that in a not in a uh, stand-up fight on October 7th, Hamas beat the uh, Israeli occupation force, which is evident from the results. Let me just look at it. Hamas ran all over all over the occupied territory, see so many um, prisoners and went almost all the way to the West Bank. So uh, I think Ritter is right about that. Thank you, comrades. All right. Thank you, comrade.
Yeah. Um, on that point um, about the colonial power that Comrade Pennsylvania stated, um, I think that another thing that we don't look at when we look at situations and conflicts in the Middle East is we don't really, in the Western world at least, we don't really do an analysis of how Islamist groups operate um, and kind of what are the strategies they use are. For example, uh, hostage taking. So if you can recall back in 1979 in Iran, there were, during the Iranian revolution, uh, what happened? The revolutionary students took the control of the embassy and held, took hostage, took the Americans hostage in the embassy. And basically uh, Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini went to the press, the American press, and he said, if you want the hostages freed, uh, give us the Shah. And that was his way of kind of using leverage as the hostage taking to basically use leverage to get the Shah back into Iran to be tried for, to be put on trial. And basically like, this is how Islamist groups deal with colonial powers and imperialist powers. They just, they believe in hostage taking, not because they want to harm people per se, but necessarily, but more so because they do it um, to basically use it as leverage. And I just wanted to touch on that point that this is something that we've seen in the past. This is just kind of how Islamist groups operate. All right. Thank you for that comment. Okay. Yeah. So um, Gaza is taking out a lot of tanks, uh, tanks and armor. Uh, they have, they send out videos and I've seen them take out like six or seven tanks within like a two or three day span. They have a ton of places to hide. I mean, Gaza is small. It's a concentration camp, if we're being honest. So it just it reminds me of the Warsaw ghetto uprising. All right. Thank you for your comment. What did the IOF stand for? I believe it stands for Israeli Occupational Forces. And there's another, uh, I think, as well. Yeah, I heard that they already like founded another settlement in Gaza. Yes, I think, uh, Comrade, did you want to answer that? Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the IOF is the um, non-Zionist word that we use for what Zionists call the IDF. All right, thank you for that, Comrade. Thank you, Comrade. Uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, Hamas is not acting by itself. It's allied with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a, a comrade organization of our party, and the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine and the Islamic Jihad. Two of those parties are communist parties and and uh, shows you that in this coalition there are, there's communist interests. Um, just wanted to mention um, a few other things. Uh, uh, I had a question. What happened to the video taken from the Apache helicopter killing Israeli civilians? I think it would be interesting to see that. We saw it on Tuesday. Um, slides eight and slides nine only uh, present opinion. And this is mainly the opinion that is in the uh, Western news media, which is biased and, uh, and falsified. Um, and then I want to point out to contrast with that opinion is the APIC statement uh, that just came out about a week ago, and it shows that Israel is really just a proxy client state of the USA, which intends to use this whole situation to uh, dominate the Middle East again. You know, they've been driven out recently. All right. Thank you for that. 
Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to comment. So I think we have the video. All right, thank you for that. The uh, updated kill list for the journalists, I think, is 70. 70 journalists have been killed so far. Thank you for that information. Yeah, I'm uh, yeah, I'm vaguely familiar with the Dash. I was curious what groups make up that coalition, if the uh, Communist Party is predominant or if they're just one of many in the Dash. Uh, if anyone would like to answer that, feel free to put your hand up. Uh, the issue is that I was around and active at the time when it happened. They, there was a group called Black Something in Israel. They were mostly from Africa and other countries. And uh, I forgot their last name was Black, Black Panthers. Like the Black Panthers, right? Similar to the name we had here in this country, but not the same ideology. The ones in this country were new left ideology, but there they were closer to a Marxist Leninism. So they formed an alliance with them. And that's where Hadash comes about from. All right. Thank you for that. Hello, this is good evening, comrades. I think the, the behavior of the Israeli government, which is very isolated, uh, even within Israel, the opposition is very strong, and uh, they're opposing the Netanyahu government, which is uh, ultra-rightist, very, uh, very useless, and is, uh, it does not have a popular support in the country, like the way we are here. So I think overall, the agenda of the globalists has come to an end, although they are not trying to, they are not admitting it globally, because the United States and the NATO and Israel in the Middle East, they are all at, at a full-scale war in conventional terms, except using nuclear weapons. So I think they are losing ground globally. So I think our party has the upper hand, because uh, although we do not have state power, we are politically warm. So I think the next step is to, to just keep uh, creating consciousness among the majority of Americans and uh, the proletariat. And I think the Anglo-American empire or U.S.-NATO alliance has come to an end in conventional terms, and that can be empirically verified. It's gone. I think they have, they have lost. All right. Thank you for your comment. I feel as though at this current moment, Israel is essentially sort of like a proxy state for um, American imperialism or essentially capitalist imperialism. It's used as an unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Middle East to have control over that area, market, oil, all of that other type of stuff. And then we're also dealing with a situation of the Palestinian people being essentially under colonial occupation. So how is it best to view this, this situation? Is it better to view it in an anti-imperialist mindset and evaluating um, capitalism's sort of stranglehold over the area? Or is it better to look at it from a national liberation struggle that I feel like we should support? Thank you. All right. If anyone would like to answer that question, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Um, yeah, just, just to answer that question, I have some other comments to make later, but I won't make them now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a national liberation struggle. There's no question about that. It's just amazing. You look at the maps from 1948 to 1967 to now, the amount of Palestinian land has shrunk from a very small amount to, to minuscule. And so this is what's going on. And when Hamas broke out 
I believe that uh, Professor Finkelstein said that this was like uh, um, uh, a slave uprising because that's the conditions under which they live in Gaza, very terrible conditions. And so, yes, national liberation struggle for sure. And of course, they're fighting against U.S. imperialism. They're not just fighting against the Zionists. They're fighting against U.S. imperialism. And that's why when they win, and they will win, what will come down is U.S. imperialism. Thank God for that. All right. Thank you for your insight. And I definitely agree with that. It can definitely be viewed in both ways. Let's pretend we're a bunch of bookies in Las Vegas. What are the odds? What are the high graph odds, 60, 40, 70, 30, of this thing going nuclear? Because everyone was concerned about Ukraine and Russia going nuclear. And while that still can go nuclear, the concern isn't as intense as it once was. You've got all these fundamentalists from the religious right thinking that, oh, my God, this so befits what we've been waiting for, what we've been longing for for so long. They're pathetically desperate for their beliefs to be validated so much so to the point where they don't care how many people die. So between that and the already existing situation in the background with Ukraine and Russia, what are the odds, 60, 40, 70, 30, of this thing going nuclear? Because, of course, whether Israel wants to admit it or not, they've got news. They've got a lot of news. So what are the odds? What are the Vegas odds? All right. Thank you for your comment. I would say to answer that question, higher than it should be, more than zero percent. And that's too high. It should be zero percent because, you know, one out of a hundred times you flip a coin, it you know, or you it's going to happen if it's like one in a hundred odd. I, I don't know what those numbers are. I don't want to speculate, but it's not zero. And that's the dangerous thing. And so we have to do everything we can to push for peace and not like what APEC is trying to do and uh, the UJPFO and not promote a nuclear war in the Middle East because that would be devastating. And I just wanted to add, that's why those uh, peace cords are important because whether we like it or not, it's gonna be impossible for a one state Palestinian state to absorb all the Jewish settlers. There's no way that's gonna, it's gonna be like a reverse of a refugee problem. Uh, they're not going to be okay with that. And on vice versa, Palestinians don't want to be part of the Israeli state. So they need each other. There's no way around that. That's, I support, a two-state solution and why the Communist Party has. Now, things have changed. And I think we see that, um, you know, like the PA is definitely a bit beholden to imperialism. However, it is not that they are doing this just to self-serve imperialism. And the second... Uh, and they also want peace and stability. So Hamas has an opportunity right now to really push for peace accords, to go back to uh, the like the Oslo Accords. And that's what I would like to add. All right. Thank you for that. And I do just want to keep in mind the time. It is 10.09. I think we can move on to the rest of our presentation. And this will be uh, Scott Ritter video. In the end game here, I think they'll be gone. I think there's going to be a new government in Israel, one that's reflective of the reality. It's going to be a government that has little or no negotiating position with the United States because the United States is looking at a bigger picture. And the bigger picture 
It requires stability in the Middle East. In order to do that, we need Saudi Arabia on our side. We need Iran to be pacified. We need the Arab world to be doing what we want it to do. That is our big picture. And we're not going to let Israel get in the way. It has eliminated the one major obstacle to peace in the Middle East, and that is Israeli intransigence about uh, a Palestinian state. That's gone. There will be a Palestinian state. Israel has no choice but to accept this. It will be dictated to them by the United States, by the international community, because the international community is turning on Israel as we speak. As I said, you can only drop so many bombs on a helpless civilian population before people call you out for being the war criminals that you are. So when the tides of war seemed insurmountable, when all Sorry hope appeared lost. So I, I think going forward, we're going to be seeing a different Israel. And this is the game changer because the Middle East without that, that isn't dominated by an Israeli oppressor or just a, a very powerful, assertive Israel is a Middle East that hasn't existed since, you know, 19, in the, the 1970s. It's going to be a wonderful thing. I believe in an Israeli state. Don't get me wrong. I believe that Israel has a right to exist, that there needs to be a Jewish homeland. I mean, uh, the Holocaust proves that, but you can't have a homeland and expect to live in peace and security when, in order to get that homeland, you deny millions of people the right to have their own homeland, which is what Israel is doing with the Palestinians. Right. That's not how you live in peace. So I think this is compelling. Israel will have to change its parameters. I think political Zionism is going to take a big hit. Yep. which is going to have a the tremors that come off of that one is going to be interesting to watch. Israel will exist, should exist, must exist, and they must exist with security. But Israel has never accepted the notion of security guarantees. Israel has always said that we are responsible for our own security. I think now uh, there's going to have to be security guarantees put in there where, you know, because Israel can't be allowed to have the military that it has right now. And frankly speaking, after this abysmal performance, the Israeli taxpayers may say we're better off by having security guarantees from abroad than this this apparatus that failed us miserably. And, the, and an interesting thing is if you start rethinking what Israeli security looks like. Do they now need the Samson option? Do they need their nuclear weapons? And this could actually be the opportunity to put Israeli nuclear weapons on the table. Again, what happened on October 7th is a tragedy. I will never I will never say otherwise. I wish they hadn't died. I wish the attacks hadn't taken place. But I think that it has opened up. It's shaken up the Middle East right. to the point that there is real chance because the Middle East had become calcified around a reality dictated by Israel and imposed by Israel on others. And now that it's been shooken up, I think we have a chance for a more equitable peace, one that is because you can be compelled to be peaceful for a little while. But at some point in time, you remember we talked about the safety valve and, right. and, and the pressure. Right. If you don't resolve the, that which creates the pressure, the pressure will eventually build up. If we now international community can work with Israel to create a peace in the Middle East where you've eliminated that pressure cooker, we could be looking at real peace down the road. And that would be fascinating. It would be. <laughs> it would be. Well, well Scott, I, I want to. All right. Thank you for that. Carmine General Secretary, would you like to make a comment? Yeah, I want to mention that I've been following Scott Ritter recently, and he's being interviewed on this issue of what's going on in Gaza now. And uh, he's coming out with statements that I find really interesting that we never really dealt with. But we did deal with it with the Soviet Union. What am I bringing the Soviet Union in? Because the Soviet Union under Stalin and Lenin created a Jewish homeland. 
People don't know this. It still exists. It's a homeland that caters to Jewish culture, Eastern European Jewish culture, and is not Zionist. That's the key point. You can have a Jewish homeland that is not Zionist. And that's what Scott Ritter is saying. He's saying Israel has a right to exist, but not as a Zionist state. And there are some people say, no, that can't be. It can be, and it has been done. And I suggest people do some research. Go to the website of Bera Bajan. This is the big secret that has been kept from the American Jewish community, let alone the American community. Bera Bajan exists, it's viable, and it was very much a part of, um, of Stalin and, and Lenin's plan to create a homeland for Jews. But it did not exist off the backs of people that were living there, like the Palestinians. So I thought that Scott Ritter's position is very interesting. And he's not a communist. I find that also interesting. His, his position, to me, is clearer than some people who call themselves communists or Marxists. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to echo uh, what General Secretary Angelo was saying about Biro Bijan. As a matter of fact, I have here actually, uh, this was published, uh, Moscow 1939, D. Bergelson's uh, The Jewish Autonomous Region, very small. And if I read the very last paragraph, uh, it says here, the bright glow of the ruby stars on the Kremlin towers beckons equally to all the nations. And for the once oppressed Jewish people as well, the Kremlin stars shine with the great light of humanity of socialism. This is a prime example of what is what practically is a non-Zionist Jewish region, which catered to the interests of the Jewish people, of, uh, of, of the people, both in their religious and in their uh, cultural endeavors and their linguistic endeavors as well. Hebrew uh, and Yiddish were both were all used in in the uh, autonomous region of Biro Bijan and the city of uh, uh, Khabarovsk, not not too far away from uh, Vladivostok, right north of Manchuria. So that's all I have to say. Thank you. All right, thank you for that. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to respond to that issue issue of nuclear war that was raised earlier. Basically, um, the scenario in which in which Israel would use the nuclear weapons would be if they were invaded by Egypt or by Iran and and the invasion actually brought the existence of their regime endangered it so that they would out of desperation perhaps use nuclear weapons now what's going on now is a very different situation here we have uh, a national liberation movement on the territory that they control trying to break out of it and uh, negotiate with the government so that's a very different situation than uh, than something that would cause a nuclear war. And even if Hamas and PFLP got so far as to occupy Israeli government offices, still, it's not a foreign state that's doing it. You know, it, this is your own, in effect, their own people or the people they, they rule. So it's a very different kind of situation. Now, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. The Oslo Accords discredited the PLO because it recognized Israel as a legitimate entity, okay? That's what happened there. Oslo was hated by the Palestinians. Um, it's erroneous to say that the Intifada came seconds. as a result of the failure of the Oslo Accords because the Palestinians didn't like the Oslo Accords. 
Oh, my favorite topic, terrorism. The the uh, Palestinians are called terrorists, which is an absurd, absurd allegation. You know who's a who's a terrorist in their tradition, in the tradition of the Palestinians being terrorists? George Washington. George Washington crossed the river in 19, was it 1775 or 1776? He crossed the Delaware River with his troops. And they, they marched on defenseless Hessian troops in uh, in Trenton and slaughtered them all on Christmas Day. My God, how could you be so terrible? But that's what's part of building up the American Revolution. On the, on the 2006 election, it shows how much Gazans support Hamas. 70% they won. How many Israeli hostages have been released again? I want to say that the number is probably, in the initial hostage swap, there was about 30 hostages. It was one hostage that Hamas would release uh, for every three Palestinian prisoners. 150 got released in the initial part of the, the ceasefire from Israeli prisons and Palestinians that went home to their families. And I think about like 50 or so you know, Israelis from the Hamas, from Hamas's side got released. And actually, kind of following up on a Telegram channel recently, there's been since then, there's been several um, more swaps and hostages. And the most recent comes, comes from Press TV that says Hamas released eight more captives in the seventh phase of the swap deal with Israel. So hopefully that answers the question. All right. Thank you for that, comrades. Yeah, I just wanted to add really quickly how this uh, conflict is playing a role in the larger geopolitical context. Even the uh, supposed puppets of the U.S. have now been turning against the U.S. line and have been coming out in support of Palestine. I think even Japan came out recently in support of Palestine. And I also wanted to point out that Iran has also been a an anti-imperialist force Um and this conflict has united the Arab world, regardless of which states have been U.S. puppet states or not. So I, I think it's important to keep that in context. All right. Thank you. Well said, comrade. Yeah, since we don't have time for the question, I just want to suggest maybe a possible future class that, like, with regard to the ceasefire, kind of echoing what said that, like, obviously, this Israeli government doesn't really want to honor that, but that it this was unthinkable in the past and represents like internal instability within the state of Israel. And I've even seen some people talking about how like certain acts of genocide by like this current state is like an act of desperation to keep the Israeli state together. And that really things are like going very positively in this movement. So I just think we should maybe look into that if at all possible in the future. All right. Thank you, comrade. And that's going to be our last comment from, our attendees tonight. I'm sorry for the other comrades that have their hands up, but I just want to thank everybody for attending this class. And I just want to say as well, I haven't been able to be involved in a lot of making this class because I've actually been out alongside the mass movement, calling for a ceasefire, going to my city council, acting, getting off of my posterior to actually stop this genocide. And I hate to say it, but I've been pretty disappointed with a lot of the immobility that we've had on it. And I think that we're missing out on a lot of the mass movement, which is not homogenous. And there are one state and two state solution supporters, but 
I think that it's a moral failing on us if we don't get out there to stop this genocide. And I think that having all these addendums about Hamas and ultra leftists and everything is kind of just watering that down. All right. Thank you, comrade. And then comrade general secretary, if there's anything you have to say before we play our final song for tonight, you have the floor. Yeah. Can you all hear me? Yes. Yeah. I just wanted to say the party and the school right now is very big on secession of all bombing. That's what we're calling for. And we have never, ever said that we are going to put our principles in a sectarian way above the goal. The goal is secession of, of the bombing. But we still have to keep our principles. Otherwise, what are we? If we're not what we are, then who are we? What are we? We're just another group in the crowd. So I want to stress that. Um, but the secession of bombing for this class has to be the main thing. And we have to be willing to work with everyone that's for that. That includes both sides of the coin. That includes not only people who are close to us, but others. Remember, there are divisions. There are divisions in Israel concerning Netanyahu. We have to fan those flames of division. We have to know that. When we did that in the anti-fascist movement, we did that always whenever the Democrats and the Republicans uh, were different in election. We always pushed for the more progressive Democrats. They're not going to solve our answers, but they're the most progressive. And we formed coalitions with them. During the Vietnam War, that's all we did. We had coalitions with all kinds, the ultra-left. We had with the mainstream Democrats. Even Mayor Lindsay, New York, was a big Republican. And we had alliances with him against the war in Vietnam. So, of course, we do that. That's just part of, the, of, of our thing. So I'm glad we had this meeting tonight. I think this is an uh, an advantage for the school. When there were new people here, we didn't get a chance to talk to, unfortunately. And we hope to see them next week on Thursday. It's coming Thursday. But thank you all for coming. Thank you.